0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. happy to be here to you, and welcome to another session of SACBOX. We uh,
1: have a good program lined up for you, and we welcome you here. And I particularly want to welcome those who have seldom attended who or are our newcomers today. My name's Austin and My role is to be moderator today. The cost of the program and the meal is $11. And you put that on the basket on your table, please. And will somebody at your table please count to see if the money that's collected is correct and matches the number of people at the table. This is a volunteer organization, and somebody caught that on fairly quickly and came over and paid a membership this morning. It's a good time of year to do that if you haven't done so. And that uh, helps to support the costs related to the call. We appreciate the support of various organizations. There is uh, Country Catering, Country Kitchen Catering. Uh, Shaw Television broadcasts uh, the program I, uh, um, each week. I think it's on Sunday afternoons. Good, so you can check it there if you want to see it again. Uh, CKXU, the FM station at the University, uh, records and uh, and reproduces the program. And the Lethbridge Herald has a recorder here each week, which we appreciate uh, very much. Uh, the outline of the program is that uh, we have our guest speakers speak for 25 to 30 minutes, uh, have our lunch, and then we have a question period uh, beginning about 25 minutes later. <clears throat> we... Um, have to be appreciative of Barry Robinson making the trip down from Calgary this morning. Don't you agree? <laughs> and if he wants to, he can tell us about the road conditions. Um, he is a staff lawyer with justice worked in the forest industry for a while, and has represented various clients dealing with environmental issues, oil and gas activities, their allocation, licensing issues, and the protection of species, and now acts as a legal consultant for various environmental groups for are making proposals and presentations to the North, uh, Northern Gateway pipeline. I would be very surprised if you hadn't heard about today's subject. I think I'd, I'd be very surprised indeed. Anyway, uh, I'm very, very, delighted that you're here. We look forward to your address this morning, and please come and speak to us.
0: Well, thank you very much uh, for the introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here to speak with you today, and the roads from Calgary to Lethbridge are not great, so stay home. <laughs> uh, the topic, as shown on the slide, is, is the, does the Northern Gateway Pipeline make sense? The benefits, the risks, the alternatives, and the hearing process. And the my goal today is to try to give you uh, an overview of the main issues that have arisen At the public hearings into the proposed uh, Northern Gateway Pipeline so far, Uh, they're not over yet. They will continue. And I look forward to uh, having a discussion and to your questions uh, at the end of the uh, after we have our lunch. So just in case there are people who maybe aren't familiar with the Northern Gateway Pipeline proposal, I wanted to start with a bit about what it's about. Uh, The Northern Gateway Pipeline is a proposed pipeline that would run from just outside of Edmonton at the Bruderheim area and would run to Kitimat, B.C. Uh, It is primarily aimed at moving uh, oil sands oil uh, from the Bruderheim area to the coast, Uh, although it could carry any kind of oil product, really. It could carry conventional oil as well as, as oil sands oil. It actually is two pipelines. The one pipeline to carry the oil from Bruderheim to Kitimat, and then there's a, another pipeline in the same right away that will carry what's called condensate that will come in by ship to Kitimat and carry that to, to Bruderheim. And what condensate is, condensate is a very light oil product, and it has to be uh, the oil that's coming out of the oil sands, which is called bitumen, is quite a heavy product, and it doesn't flow well in a pipeline. So you have to mix a very light sort of oil with it to get it to flow. So the oil that will be running from Ruderheim to uh, to Kitimat is actually about a 70% bitumen of oil and about 30% bit of condensate that's mixed in to make it uh, loose enough that it will flow, so to speak. Pipeline is is just over 1,100 uh, kilometers long, and of course, then at the Kitimat end, there's a there's a terminal uh, tanks uh, there to store the oil in. And then a marine terminal for, for loading that oil onto the ships, and also for unloading condensate off of the ships and into the pipeline. The aim is primarily to uh, to export oil to to China, Japan, Korea, and somewhat to a lesser extent to uh, to California. Um, this will involve about 225 uh, tankers a year coming, additional tankers a year coming in into Kitimat. And these will be up to the largest supertankers that are out there, which are called BLCCs, a very large supertanker. Just, uh, although you probably not that great from the back of the room, just a bit of a diagram of where this pipeline runs, from just outside Edmonton to Kitimat. Uh, just to describe it, as I said, it starts near, near uh, Edmonton, runs through White Court, south of Grand Prairie, and then along a route that passes sort of through Tumblr Ridge, Burns Lake, Smithers, uh, areas in BC and then ends up at the coast. Before I actually get into what's happened at the hearings, I have to declare my biases. So just so you know uh, where I come from on this, um, I am a lawyer with Ecojustice. Ecojustice is a national nonprofit organization of lawyers and scientists. Uh, we have offices in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, and Ottawa. We act primarily as legal counsel to, to uh, nonprofit environmental groups, although occasionally we do represent uh, individuals as well. Our mission is that we use the law to protect and restore the environment in, in Canada. Uh, in the Northern Gateway process, we represent three uh, British Columbia environmental groups. Uh, one is the Living Ocean Society, which is a group in a small town called Soyantula, which is on the North BC coast and they've been involved in, in sort of marine research for a number of years. The other group we represent is called the Raincoast Coast Conservation Foundation, and they are primarily scientists. They have a research vessel that, they, uh, that is based in Sydney uh, on Vancouver Island, and they uh, go out on very long trips and map and, and uh, locate uh, whales and birds and marine mammals such as seals, and they are the experts in this area. And then finally, the third group is called Forest Ethics Advocacy, which has an office in Smithers, and they represent sort of local interests, uh, environmental interests in the Smithers area. So now a bit about the hearings. Uh, This pipeline requires approvals under two different uh, federal acts, under the National Energy Board Act and under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act. Therefore, there's been appointed what's called a joint review panel because it requires approvals under under both acts. So the joint review, re- the panel that is hearing this, so sort of the judges, I've used the word judges, although they aren't judges that are hearing this, are two permanent members of the National Energy Board and then a member who's been appointed by the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency. And the idea is that they have one set of hearings that meets the requirements of both Acts and then the approvals can be either given or denied uh, under the Acts. This will be the last uh, large pipeline hearing that has this format. Uh, under changes that were made in the budget in the spring of 2012, from this time forward only the National Energy Board will hear to this kind of pipeline hearing. The uh, Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency will not be involved anymore. Now, the hearing process has been very extensive. They started in, um, well, it should start with, uh, there are two types of people involved in the hearing uh, to be heard there. Um, there are what are called interveners, which are like my groups, who want to present uh, scientific evidence and have it discussed and have it questioned. There's also an opportunity just for individuals who live anywhere in Alberta or B.C. to have their say, uh, and, and those are called community hearings. Uh, the panel started in January of last year, so about exactly a year ago, uh, they started in Alberta, and uh, they have heard from—they uh, will by the time they're done—have heard from 4,000 individuals who want who have 10 minutes to say their piece and say what they think about the pipeline. So they started those last January. Those ran till July. They took, took a bit of a break in August. In September in Edmonton, we started with the more formal hearings, which involves the lawyers and the evidence. Uh, we were in Edmonton for a month in September. We were in Prince George for six weeks following that. We got started just in Prince Rupert, uh, just for a week before the Christmas break. So these hearings have been going on for quite some time. The hearings, uh, restarted, uh, the community hearings where the individuals can come and talk for ten minutes. Restarted, uh, last week or this week actually being this week in Vancouver. or in Victoria, and then they will move to Vancouver in Kelowna, so that's going to be January. And some of you may have read or seen in the media how up to now the uh, the hearings have been held in a room much like this. The public's been welcome to come and sit and listen and and see what goes on. In Victoria and Vancouver, what they've done is they've separated the two venues, so the only people allowed into the room are one at a time, are the individuals who are going to speak, and if you, want to, if you want to watch the hearings, you are in a hotel three or four kilometers away where you watch it on, on video. And uh, the panel is saying they did this for security reasons. Um, I, you know, I've been at the hearings since September, pretty steady, and um, you know, they're pretty mundane affairs. And, yeah, has there been an occasional uh, public demonstration outside? Yes, but certainly there's been no security issues that, I, that I've seen in that time. Formal hearings will pick up in in, uh, in February. They'll end by May, and then the panel, uh, this panel of three people, have to make their recommendation uh, to Joe Oliver, the minister of natural resources, by the end of the year. So why does Northern Gateway, and, and I use the term Northern Gateway, Northern Gateway um, Northern Gateway Pipelines Limited Partnership, is just a subsidiary of Enbridge. They're the ones who are proposing the uh, proposing the pipeline, and, and why do they want this pipeline to the coast? Well, right now, uh, Canadian, as, as you may know, except for a very small amount, Canadian oil exports are limited to the U.S. We have we have pipelines into the U.S. We don't have other means of getting oil anywhere else. There is a small amount of oil, about seventy-five thousand barrels a day, goes out through a terminal in Vancouver, but it's very small. Now, the U.S. Uh, primarily imports, uh, you know, it produces 30 to 40% of its own oil, but then it imports a lot of oil, uh, primarily from Mexico, from the Middle East, and from South America. And that primarily comes in through the Gulf of Mexico ports and through ports on the east coast of the U.S. And, and really, that oil coming in really sets the price of oil in the U.S., uh, so, for example, if you are an oil refinery at the Gulf of Mexico in Texas, uh, there's a price set there that you're willing to pay to get your last barrel of oil. You deduct the cost of getting that oil, safe from the Middle East, and that's what the Middle East producer gets. And what, that's what Canada is competing against. And so you may have heard or read in the media about how Canadian oil is being discounted uh, by $20 or $30 a barrel because we're pushing it into the U.S. And that's true. And I, I do not we could be here all day if we try to analyze how this works. But if you, if you think about sort of oil price at the Gulf of Mexico, now if the East supplier wants to move that oil farther north into the U.S., the transportation comes, cost comes off of what the East supplier gets. <laughs> Countering that, you've got Canadian suppliers trying to push oil farther and farther south into the US. They'd like to get all the way to the Gulf. But as you do that, you have to deduct the uh, transportation costs to the south, and therefore this is where this, this discount comes in. The problem being, the more and more oil that we produce in Alberta has to go somewhere. So the more and more we try to push that south into the US, the bigger and bigger the discount that the supplier, that the producer in Alberta is getting because of the transportation costs. That's probably way more complicated than anybody wanted to hear, but that's the battle that's going on. Matching that, you have China. You have China buying a lot of oil around the world, and in fact, China is so desperate for oil that it pays OPEC more than the world market price in order to get its its oil, and that's called the China premium. So China actually pays above the world market price to get OPEC oil. So when Enbridge and other producers are, are well, Enbridge isn't a producer; it's a pipeline company. But when the producers they're serving are saying is, "Wow, if we could get our oil to China, then we're going to get that that Chinese premium price," and that's really what's behind this this, this whole proposal, is to to get that price. So these are uh, these are uh, Enbridge's estimates of what this is worth. They say if they can build this pipeline and and transport uh, oil to China, it'll be a 312 billion dollar increase in Canadian gross domestic product over the over the first 33 years of life of the pipeline, or about 9.2 billion a year. It would be a 98 billion dollar increase in government revenues in terms of uh, taxes and other revenues that they would pay. And that it would be 907,000 person-years of employment that this would create. I call this the reality check, and this is again to just to express my biases. These are the sort of the weaknesses that I see. It, I see in that argument um, because the pipeline will create this competition for between China and the U.S. for Canadian oil. Enbridge says that that the pipeline will result in a two to three barrel. Uh, two to three dollars per barrel increase in the price of all Western Canadian oil, not just the oil that's going down the pipeline, and not just not just tar sands oil, but in all Western Canadian oil, that the price will go up by two to three dollars because of the competition that this will create. Um, the one problem I see with that is, is if I'm a U.S. buyer, once that 525,000 barrels a day is full going to China, why am I going to pay a premium on what's left over to go to the U.S.? I don't think it applies. It should apply to all Western Canadian production. The other thing that's built into those enormous numbers that I showed you on the previous slide is Enbridge assumes that all of the price increase, all of that 2 to $3 per barrel on every barrel produced in Western Canada will be reinvested in the oil industry in Western Canada. And so that number includes all that reinvestment plus The value of all the oil produced by that reinvestment. So that's why you get these very huge numbers. They are assuming that every extra dollar that's earned by this pipeline will get reinvested in Western Canadian oil and it includes the extra value of that. Now, again, the reality check, first point I've already made why would the U.S. buyers continue to pay a premium once the Northern Gateway pipeline is full? The other question is: Will the oil destined for China actually enter the market? And and we raised this uh, initially in, in the hearings in Edmonton. And if you think about this, this one of the situations we have developing now, as you may be aware, is we have a, now uh, more and more uh, Chinese state-owned companies controlling oil production uh, in part in, in Alberta, primarily in the oil sands. Uh, Chinese state-owned con- uh, uh, producers are part will be part owners of the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline. And they also tend to be owners of the shipping companies. So if you are, for example, the Chinese National Oil Company, you're producing the oil in Alberta, you own part of the pipeline capacity, you own the shipping capacity, and you own the refinery in China China that this is going to, that oil actually doesn't enter into sort of the free pricing market for uh, for oil. So that raises the question of, do you really get this $2 to $3 uh, per barrel benefit? Now, when I raised this, uh, uh, the media sort of grabbed onto this. I don't want to criticize the media folks in here. But it was sort of like I, I had presented sort of, you know, China as the evil well, empire. The only is that the and I was saying, no, support. this is just strictly an economic argument. And it actually has happened in the U.S. before. It happened in Alaska, where Imperial uh, Oil controlled the production, and they controlled the refining that was going for. It, so the oil never entered the market. And this actually led to a big legal case, because Imperial Oil just said, well, we're just going to declare a value to this oil, and the state of Alaska wasn't happy because they weren't collecting the revenues they thought they should have. So I just questioned whether in that scenario, with the Chinese control of all these components, whether this, this oil actually does enter the market and drive up the price. The other part of this puzzle is, as I said, right now, OPEC gets a premium because China's willing to pay for it. And uh, Enbridge's numbers bank on Canadian companies being able to get that premium price in China. But I wonder, once Canadian companies start stealing market from OPEC, OPEC's, I think, going to react by lowering that Chinese premium. So it also will reduce what Canadian companies get. So what are the risks? Um, I'll start with the risks of the pipeline. Uh, This pipeline will will cross 773 water courses or streams or rivers, and it's length. 669 of them are fish-bearing, And this includes the headwaters of the Fraser, the Spina, and the Kitimat drainages. And uh, a lot of these drainages are important salmon fisheries uh, in BC. Um, Gateway's own calculation of the risk is that they would have a spill greater than 1,000 cubic meters of oil uh, once every 95 years per pipeline. So once every 47 and a half years, you count those pipelines. Um, As someone recently pointed out to me, um, um, When the uh, Alaska pipeline was built, they had sort of similar numbers that the risks were very low in 100 years, that sort of thing. But the first, uh, the exxon Valdez spill happened within 12 years of opening that pipeline. Uh, We know from from studies that have been done by the government of Canada in northern B.C. that since 1990, there's an existing gas pipeline uh, in the area across B.C., and that pipeline has been ruptured five times since 1990 by landslides in, in west central B.C. Uh, just another little aside, is, is uh, since it's current right now, I will no more, and, and a lot of the protest that's going on is around Bill C-45. Uh, under the old Navigable Waters Protection Act, there were 40 or more of these rivers that would be crossed that would need an approval under the Navigable Waters Protection Act to make sure that the pipeline or the roads associated with it don't interfere with navigation. Under the changes under Bill C-45, that... Become now only three rivers that will need an approval uh, under the National Large Protection Act. <clears throat> so, more. What are the risks? Uh, some of you may be familiar with with sort of Enbridge's most famous spill, uh, July twenty fifth, twenty ten, in Marshall, Michigan, which was near the Kalamazoo River. Um, Enbridge's own criteria say that if the pressure drops in a pipeline, they will shut it down within five minutes. In Kalamazoo, they kept trying to repressurize the line for 17 hours before someone from Kalamazoo phoned their patrol room in Edmonton and said, you know, there's a lot of oil in the river here. And that was the first they became aware that they had a spill. 843,000 gallons of oil, uh, 320 people reported uh, health symptoms. Uh, to date, the cleanup costs have been $767 million, but the cleanup is ongoing. And, and the problem with this is uh, conventional oils that travel and to date in most pipelines float on water. You can use skimmers and booms and other things to get the oil off. Dilbit or mixed condensate bitumen, what happens once it spills is the condensate evaporates off and then the remaining bitumen sinks. So why they're, they're having such high costs to get into Kalamazoo is they are literally trying to dredge the oil off the bottom of the river now, and that cleanup continues on. Uh, the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board's uh, study of the Kalamazoo spill concluded that there was a culture of deviance in the Enbridge control room in Edmonton. Just so you're aware, all of Enbridge's pipelines in North America are controlled out of the control room And uh, what they meant by a culture of deviance is that the operators in that room weren't following their own safety procedures that were in place, and that's why it took 17 hours to detect. We found through our research that uh, between 1995 and and 2010, Enbridge has been fined in the U.S. or Canada 29 times uh, for safety and environmental violations. One particularly egregious one was as they constructed a, a pipeline in Wyoming, they had over 500 construction uh, violations in the million. I want to just touch briefly on marine risk. I don't want to delay lunch at all. This is a photo from an uh, Enbridge promotional video, which purports to show Kitimat mm-hmm. and the route out to the Pacific Ocean. And uh, this is what someone, lived, a, a GPS specialist in the area, uh, put together showing that Enbridge promotional video uh, video Sort of forgot about a lot of islands and things that are and channels that are in the way. It's about 70 kilometers from the open ocean, Hecate Strait, into Kitimat. It's a very narrow and windy route, and uh, if you're familiar with West Coast weather, you know rain and fog and wind are 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 problems in the area. So, what are the marine risks? Uh, Same as the Kalamazoo. At least in the Kalamazoo River, it's shallow enough they're able to dredge. But if you have a bitumen spill in the ocean it sinks, there's going to be no way to get at it. And, of course, that has impacts then on, on bottom feeding fish, shellfish, and that sort of thing. The other impacts that, that my clients particularly are concerned about because they're West Coast folks is impacts particularly on whales. Uh, first of all, you have noise impacts. Right now, there's, there is some shipping traffic in out of Kitimat. There are some tankers, smaller tankers in and out of there. It's about 25 a year. As I said, that's going to be another 225 a year. Uh, the noise of the engines of these ships uh, do affect the communication of whales uh, in the area. Another issue is uh, collisions with, between ships and whales. Uh, now, for, for some reason, uh, and the biologists have explained it to me, that fin whales, are just as smaller whales, are susceptible to getting hit by, by ships. That's the way they feed. They feed, and then they suddenly come to the surface, so they, they tend to get struck. Humpback and orca whales in the area are, are both endangered species. And then, as I mentioned, there's a whole variety of wind, weather, and weather, and navigation issues, particularly in Hecate Strait and coming up through. Now, Enbridge has used a, a, a company in Denmark to model the shipping and use these simulators, but the maximum wave they've modeled is 4-meter wave uh, in Hecate Strait. Uh, Brian Falconer, who is the captain of Raincoast's uh, research vessel, you know, tells me that he's been in 14-meter waves in that strait and that he's been stuck for, for two or three days in one location where he says he couldn't see the end of the boat because of the fog. Very good. I'll try and wrap up quickly here. So are there other ways to get oil to, to a port? Well, Kinder Morgan has a existing pipeline... Uh, Problem from Edmonton to Vancouver. As I said, a small amount, about 75,000 barrels a day, goes out through the Vancouver port. Uh, Kinder Morgan has a proposal to to add 400,000 barrels a day of capacity to that line. Enbridge has plans to reverse their current line from Sarnia. It used to flow from from Portland, Maine, and bring in foreign oil to Sarnia. They want to turn that around to take Canadian oil from Sarnia uh, to Portland, Maine, where it can go out by ship. as you're all familiar, probably Keystone XL is a proposal by Trans-Canada Pipeline to get oil to the Gulf Coast, and uh, it's still waiting U.S. approval, although the Southern leg is being built right now. We're seeing more and more rail alternatives uh, to pipelines. Uh, we're seeing all kinds. We're seeing and, and see people move, moving more oil by rail than they ever have before. There's a, even a proposal to build a new rail line directly from Fort McMurray to Alaska, which would then take the oil out through the Alaska pipeline into the port of LDS. So, what is this really about? And I'll maybe end here. This is really about oil sands production. Right now, oil sands production is 1.6 million barrels per day. The predictions in the industry, have already approved, would take that to 4 million barrels per day by 2030. And we read in the media that the U.S. is becoming more or, more oil-independent. That's really not the case. Uh, even best projections, uh, the U.S. by 2035 will still be importing somewhere between 4 and 7 million barrels a day of oil. But the, discuss, you know, really, the discussion we should have had first, before considering any of these pipelines, Northern Gateway, Keystone, uh, uh, Sarnia reversal, the, the really discussion we should have had is do we want to go from 1.6 million barrels per day of oil sands production to four? Because that's the real issue. If we go to four million barrels per day and you try to push that into the U.S. market, one, you're going to depress the price so badly that nobody will afford to do it, and two, what are you know, We know what the environmental impacts, or we're learning more as some of you have seen the press this week, what the environmental impacts are of 1.6 million barrels per day. Do we as Albertans really don't want to live with the environmental impacts of four million barrels per day? And in my mind, you know, really, that's the discussion we haven't had. So this is really about, you know, Canada's long-term energy security. Do we want to wake up 60 years from now and find out that we have an oil shortage because we sold all our oil to the U.S. and to China? What are the climate and environmental impacts of pushing 4 million barrels day into the market? Or should we be aiming for some sort of low-carbon future? And, and if, I'll just end with this. The example I, I like to use often is if you think that uh, you were given one tank of oil to heat your house for your lifetime, and that tank was now half empty, what would you do? Would you, either, would you be very careful what's with what's left in the tank while you figure out what you're going to do when the oil has gone? Or would you just sell the tank to the neighbor for the best price you could get? And I think any reasonable person would do the first thing. But what we're doing in Canada is the second. We're just selling it as quick as we can for what we can get. Thank you. There's my contact information.